Good morning, church. It is an honor and a delight for me to be here, and I am overjoyed to see you all here today. Thank you very much for coming. I will summarize my sermon in one sentence, uh, especially for those of you who might be a little sleepy and might not survive the whole sermon here. Um, and that is, we have good reason. We have good reason to be humble and divine promises by which to be hopeful. Now, let me start by talking about humility. There's a famous quip by Winston Churchill uh, concerning one of his political opponents, Clement Richard Attlee, who later became Prime Minister of England after Churchill. Now, Churchill liked to soundly criticize other people. He was famous for his ability to insult other people in public, and he made many enemies. And after one of his rants against the then-to-be Clement Attlee, who was going to become prime minister, after one of his rants, a friend said to him, but surely, Churchill, you must admit that Mr. Attlee is a very humble man. To which Churchill replied, yes, it's true, he is a very humble man, but then he has much to be humble for. So I think, but that's true of all of us. I, I think that all of us have good reason to be humble, and perhaps I more than most. Now, let's look. I don't know if you remember last time, my last sermon, I talked about the Ten Commandments and how the Ten Commandments were not simply a list of things you should not do, but they were the beginning of a way of life of things that we should do. For example, when it says, thou shalt not steal, that implies under the surface that we should also train ourselves and our children so that they can have a good career, a good source of income, so they don't have to steal. It also implies that we should work hard, hard enough so that we have something to give to others rather than stealing from them. Because the Ten Commandments are a reflection of God's character. And no, any, no single statement in the Bible can completely reflect the character of God. The Ten Commandments are only a partial reflection of God's character. Now, but let's get back to the question of humility. When the Ten Commandments were given to the people by Moses, although it was not Moses who actually gave the commandments, it was God. When those commandments were given, were the people ready to receive those commandments? Were they eager and waiting for them? No. 
What happened? Can one of you briefly tell me what happened when Moses took the Ten Commandments down to the people? What did he find? Yeah, they were, they were having a big party and they were worshiping this golden calf which Aaron said miraculously appeared when they put all their gold together and, and melted it down. Like, I almost believe that. <laughs> and they weren't ready to receive the Ten Commandments. And I think, is that, have we changed as a people? Have we, are we a new generation, a, a, a new creation that no longer behaves in the same way as the people of Israel? I'm not sure we, we inherently, our genetics haven't changed. We're not that much different. And the question remains, do we really understand the character of God? Are we doing what he wants us to do? Um, I think what, in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the, that which is perfect has come, that which is in part shall be done away with. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then we shall see Christ face to face. For now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. And now abides faith, hope, and charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Now, I think we still see through a glass darkly. And if I look at my own Christian experience, every time I read the Bible, it's a new and different book than what I read 20 years ago, or even a week ago. I'm astonished by the things that I see in there that I never saw before. Um, for example, I was reading in Hebrews, and it's talking about angels. It's talking about Christ and the angels, and it says, but to which of the angels has the Lord ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Now he's talking about Christ in this situation. But he says, are they not all? Now, Paul, in the, who wrote the book of Hebrews? We think Paul might have, but we're not sure. It sounds like someone who is very well educated who knew ancient Jewish traditions and was also aware of the new teachings of Christ. Now, how many people in the world were there that knew all those things? There weren't very many. Maybe it was Apollo, maybe it was Luke, it could have been someone else, but there were very few candidates that could have risen to this level of understanding in the ancient Jewish world. So it might have been Paul, but he says, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister 
for those who will inherit salvation. Now he's talking about Christ and the angels. Aren't they all ministering spirits? Now to whom do they minister? To those who will inherit salvation. Who will inherit salvation? Well, any of us? Let's hope so. Let's hope all of us will inherit salvation. But then the question arises, why do the angels and Christ have to come to minister to us? In fact, that's the theme that repeats all through the Bible, is that we have to be ministered to, guided, protected, instructed constantly throughout all generations. And when you realize that, that's, to me, that was a very humbling revelation. We need constant guidance, constant instruction. Um, I, I think about constant instruction when I think about my wife, because my wife is always constantly instructing me. Now, why would she have to be constantly instructing me if I'm, you know, wise and I have two master's degree and one doctoral degree? You know, you'd think that, you know, someone as well-educated I would be giving instructions rather than receiving them. But no, my wife constantly tell, has to tell me exactly what to do and how to do it and when to do it and why to do it and why not to do it. It's like... Yeah, so, I mean, getting married has been a very humbling experience, I have to admit. And, but you know, I'm thankful for that guidance because the truth is that a man without a woman is like a bird without the sky. Or, or, stars without anyone to admire them. I mean, they're, they're, in everything in life, there's this, this joint relationship going on. And I think, you know, I'm very grateful for my wife because I think that, well, one thing, when I, before I got married, I was very nervous. In fact, I, I was, my whole life, I was a really nervous person and I was, you know, kind of jiggling around all the time and, and couldn't sit still. And after I got married, I like, calm, I like calmed down tremendously. I mean, no psychiatrist could have achieved that effect. And so for that, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful. I know that I'm a much calmer person now than I used to be. And, and I think it's because when you experience love, when somebody loves you, it has a profound effect on your whole Every, every thought that you think, it changes you completely because you, you realize that, hey, this is really nice and my wife takes incredibly good care of me. She's always cooking wonderful. She, my wife, if you don't know already, in my humble opinion, and this is a sermon about humility, and my wife is the best cook in the world. And if you don't believe it, I've put on about 20 pounds since we've gotten married. <laughs> so, you know, I think that we, we all need constant guidance and encouragement. In fact, I, I've been a dentist for 37 years now, and I've come to the conclusion what people need more than anything, what my patients need more than anything is... Can any of you guess? Guidance. 
What do they need more than anything? Love and affection. Love and affection. They need encouragement. That's what my patients need more than anything. They need someone to tell them, you're going to be all right. And if, if you can say that to a patient, I mean, I've had patients break into tears when I tell them that because they've been to three, four, five other doctors and, and it's all bad news. Or yes, we can help you for $66,000 or some, you know, you know, nightmare, nightmare treatment plan. But if you can give encouragement to people, they're extremely, it transforms them. It gives them courage and hope and strength to carry on. I think that's a doctor's and a minister's and a teacher's, a mother's, a father's. Greatest ability, greatest gift. If you can give encouragement to your patients, they'll to use the, an expression from the army, they'll follow you through hell and back. So, but the thing is, if we were wise and knowledgeable and strong and powerful, we wouldn't need encouragement. But the truth is, is that we are weak, that we are frail, that we're prone to err and to sin. And because of that, we need constant, constant guidance. Um, And God provides that guidance for us in many ways. He has given us the angels to look after us. He's given us Christ, which is a tremendous gift. I, you know, when I listen to the politicians on the news, there's this overriding thought that they don't have the assurance that God loves them. And they are not being guided by the Holy Spirit. I feel sad for them, how desperate they must feel, how frustrated they must be, not having the confidence, not having the hope that we share. I mean, look at the song that we sang for the opening hymn, which I think was divinely appointed. I didn't, didn't, call uh, the head elder and tell them what song to sing. We have this hope that lives inside our hearts. And that hope, I mean, every morning I wake up and I think about all the problems I have to face at work, um, everywhere I go. Um, I know I've told you before I've had, I work at the dental school and I've had at least four times department chairmen have gone to the dean and recommended I be fired. Uh, there are people that really dislike me at the dental school. Um, but I think all of us go through that. All of us go through trial, trials and struggles. We work with people that don't appreciate us. Maybe they depreciate us. But all of us go through trials and struggles. And, and But... Even when I'm going, I, when I was going, there was a time a couple of years ago when three times the department chairman called me into her office and said, I needed to resign. I don't belong here. If I don't resign, by the end of the quarter, she's going to fire me. So she says, I'm giving you three months to look for another job. So you need to find another job. And I went home and I, I was 
kind of felt sick to my stomach about this. We had just bought a new house. We had big mortgage payments to make. And I thought, boy, if I lose this job, this is going to be really difficult. Uh, as a professional, as a doctor, every time I lose a job, it typically takes me about four to six months to find another job. It doesn't happen right away. I mean, there are some people that I know, I have friends who are engineers that have been looking for jobs for five years. They just can't find engineering. I used to be an engineer, and it's cyclical. The aerospace companies will hire thousands of engineers, and then the contract ends, and they all get fired. And then maybe five or 10 years later, they hire again, and then they fire. I mean, it, losing a job can be really stressful. But I would go home and I'd pray, Lord, what should I do about this? Should I look for another job? And the Lord told me, don't look for another job. I will take care of this. Let me take care of this problem. So I just kind of relaxed and stopped worrying about it. And then at the end of the quarter, when I expected this woman to fire me, the manager called myself and her into his office. He promoted me and fired her. So this, this department chairman that was going to fire me, she herself got fired from her position. So I feel like I, through personal experience, I have hope in the future because, well, as we, we heard in the scripture reading, the first scripture reading from Hebrews, Christ was made perfect through suffering. And the same is true for all of us. We have to go through trials in order for our faith to be built up. When you go through a difficult situation and God carries you through, that's when your strength builds up. There really isn't any other way. You have to go through suffering and trials and hardships in order to build that level of trust. Now, I remember reading somewhere in the Bible that it says that, that hardship is, Christ, or is God's chosen method by which he brings us to salvation, that by which he trains and disciplines us. And we all, I think, have a long, long way to go. I know that I have a, a long, long way to go. If you don't believe me, ask my wife. She'll tell you about how much I need to learn and grow. And I mean, in a thousand different ways, and I'll just pick an instant one. My wife is a really good cook. She knows how to use herbs and spices like no one I've ever known. And she'll start making something, and she'll decide she's going to add unusual herbs and spices to it. And she'll ask me to cut them up. And she goes, no, you're cutting them up wrong. You're supposed to cut them up really fine. Or you're over grinding them. Or I'm just, you know, I never do it right. Never. I never do anything right in the kitchen. And I need constant instruction and guidance. But when I follow that guidance, my palate is rewarded with a glimpse of heaven. <laughs> because the food that she makes is really good. In fact, 
I love to go home and, yes. No, I didn't bring anything of hers today. Um, I, I wish I had, but she works um, 12 and a half hour shifts at the hospital and when she gets off work, she's, if she works three days in a row, she'll sleep like the next two days. She's really exhausted. So it's really, in fact, uh, this morning I was thinking, I need to get, find a way to make a little bit more money so she can retire and she can be at home more and then we'll have much better meals and we can entertain more, have friends over more. I really miss being, when I was a bachelor, I used to entertain more than I do now that I'm married. But now that, I mean, my wife works and it's very difficult for her to find the time and the energy when she works these long hours to, uh, she's a nurse. She works in the newborn nursery. And uh, it's a very difficult job. The first time I went to visit her in the nursery, there was a baby dying. And I mean, it was just, I just walked in as this was happening and the nurses were doing everything they can and the doctors and I mean, I was just kind of startled by what was going on. and. After the baby passed away, the nurses went, they went into shock. So, you know, it, it, I think being a nurse, it's a lot harder than I'll ever fully understand. Now, getting back to the idea of humility, in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from the dead and of faith toward God. And then he goes and lists a whole spectrum of things that, that these people need to be taught. And he says... For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, that's all of us, and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. If they fall away, it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance. And then he makes an analogy. What does God expect of us? for all the gifts that he's given to us. Does he expect us to just be able to say, well, I didn't steal anything today or murder anybody. And I had a pastor come up to me once, and so, have you been good? Now, how do you answer that, you know? Yeah, have you been good? Have you been good? And I said, well, since I've seen you last, which is a week ago, <laughs> I haven't stolen anything. I haven't murdered anybody. <laughs> and he kind of looked at me very dubiously. <laughs> he goes, you know, that's not what I meant. <laughs> so it, it, I think more is expected of us than 
I didn't do this, or it's not my fault. God expects much more of us from us. And the, here's an, an analogy. It says, if they've tasted the good word of Lord, and they, there's no way to bring them back to repentance, they're very difficult. And then he says, for the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh often to it, and brings forth herbs, receives, receives blessings from God. In other words, if God gives gifts to us, like the earth, when, it, when the Lord sends rain and it bears crops and herbs to eat for the plants and animals and for us, he expects the earth to do that. Now, what happens if the earth doesn't do that? What if it, it says, but if it brings forth thorns and briars, it is rejected and is close to being cursed. And in the end, it will be burned. Now, that's a very solemn warning to us. In other words, God has given us all special gifts, and he expects us to use them to be a blessing to others. Now, I look at my own life, and I think, well, what blessings, what gifts has God given to me? And God has shown me some of the causes of periodontal disease, and I think he wants me to write a book about it. But I'm having a really hard time sitting down and doing it. I actually sat down yesterday and worked on it for about an hour. But I think it's something he wants me to do. And if I don't do it, someday he's going to say, Jim, I showed you these things. I explained them to you like no one else understands them. And if you don't take this and move forward with it, you are in danger of, what does it say here? Being close to being cursed, and in the end, it will be burned. I mean, look at how many people before Ellen White were given the message. Two? Was it two? Two men, two men were given the message that she eventually had to bring to the church. Do you remember what one of them said, uh, one of these men who was given the message and didn't bring it forward? What he said on his near his deathbed, he said, I am a lost man. He knew that he'd been given a message from God and he didn't carry it forward and God was very upset with him. You know, and, and I think that, that in a, many different ways, God gives different burdens, messages, tasks for us to do, and he expects us to do them even if things are really difficult. Now, talking about difficulty, do you remember the story of, was it Elijah who was cursed by Jezebel? She said, if your head is still on your shoulders tomorrow morning, may the gods curse me. And he swore that, she swore she would kill Elijah. So Elijah ran into the wilderness as far away as he could and the Lord finally caught up to him and said, what doest thou here, Elijah? And he goes into his, as we all do, oh, Eli Jezebel threatened to kill me and I, I've run, this is why I've run away and I don't know where to go and, and you know, I can't go back, ever go back to Israel and, and this is, a t how could... You know, this is a horrible situation. And what did the Lord say to Elijah? 
Did he say, oh, you poor darling. It must be so hard for you. He goes, no, he says, get up. I want you to anoint this person king, and I want you to do this. And I want, you know, Elijah's going through what he thinks is the worst situation in his life, and the Lord just brushes it all aside and says, I want you to do this, this, and this. Now get to work. Get over it. And I, you know, I kind of read that, and I was kind of astonished how how blunt the Lord was with Elijah how, and how Elijah failed to see that he still had responsibilities. And I think that story's for all of us. We all have responsibilities and duties and we need to get over it. I, I'm very good at feeling sorry for myself and trying to get people to sympathize with my difficulties. But when I pray about it, the Lord says, it's like the Lord laughs at me. He goes... Is that, your, is that your biggest problem? You're lucky. You still have arms and legs, okay? <laughs> you, you have food to eat. You have a roof over your head. You have a wife who loves you. You have a job. You have a, you know, you can, you have, you can walk. You live so close to work, you can walk to work and come home for lunch. You know? So I complain a lot, and the Lord just kind of brushes it aside and says, I want you to do this, this, and this. And I think that's true for all of you. All of you have, have burdens to bear, have tasks to do, have mountains to climb. God didn't create us so we could walk around and say, well, I didn't do anything wrong today. I mean, imagine if you were, let's say, a musician and uh, you... You said, someone says to you, what did you do today? Well, I didn't play any wrong notes today. And the person says, maybe it's the conductor, says, you didn't play any notes today. What did you do today? You didn't even practice. You know, I think God expects great things from us. He didn't create us so that we could spend our life sinning and then repent and then go to heaven all repentant and thankful to Jesus, although we will be thankful. I think he created for us for much, much better things than this. To be an encouragement to others. To be, to give hope to others. To fulfill promises. What does it say in the book of Hebrews in, in chapter 13? Let me read some of that. I'm sorry. Hebrews 11. It says, I'll just start reading near the end, it, but it goes through this list of amazing accomplishments. Well, let me read through it. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. By faith, the harlot did not perish with those in Jericho, because she received the spies in peace. And he says, what more can I say? For time fails me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Japheth and David and Samuel, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Now, were these passages written just for 
Gideon and Barak and Samson and Japheth and David and Samuel. Who was this written for? It was written for you. Does God expect us to quench the violence of fire, escape the edge of the sword, out of weakness to be made strong, to be valiant in battle, to receive our dead back to life, to be tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. This was written for us. When I, when I, I just, I've read this before, but recently I read this about a week ago and I realized this is for me. This is for all of us. God wants us to be able to these things to be said about us. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Now, remember it was said Christ was made perfect through suffering, and it talks about the suffering of his saints. Christianity is an astonishing religion. Why would anyone want to become a Christian knowing that you might suffer stonings and temptations, slain with the sword, sawn in half, wandering around? Now, what on earth could possibly compel anyone to want to go through trials like this? Well, it's because we realize how much God loves us, and that somehow in the end, he'll carry us through. Whatever difficulty comes, he will carry us through. I think love is, is the most, possibly, arguably, the most powerful force in the world. And when we... I mean, when I got married, my wife's love transformed who I was. It, Turn me into a new person. I don't think women understand the effect that they have on men, the positive effect they have, the calming effect. Because when they show that love, when they root, and when you show love to anyone, that's not something that's inside of me, I know, naturally. I think it, love is always a gift from God. And when you can give it to others, you're taking a gift from Him and sharing it with, with someone else. And so love is, a, is one of the purest forms of ministry. You receive from God and you share with others. Now what does it say of these saints in Hebrews 11? It says, of whom the world is not worthy. The world is not worthy of any of you, all of you are saints. And when I read Hebrews 11, your names are here. 
It says, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and in caves in the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise here on earth. It wasn't until, it won't be until their resurrection that they will receive their rewards. Nor will any of you for all the good things that you have done and are doing and will do. I'm confident that God has called each and every one of you as he called Gideon and Barak and Samson, David and Samuel and Abraham and Moses. He's called every one of you and given you a work to do, a way to be a blessing to others. And it can happen in a thousand different ways. Sometimes it's just little gestures of kindness. Sometimes it's making great sacrifices. I heard a story on the radio the other day about a man who divorced his wife without good reason. He just wanted someone younger, uh, but his new relationship didn't work out, so he didn't get married to his trophy bride. But he later got sick, and he got kidney disease, and he needed a kidney transplant. So his former wife gave him her kidney. Now, what kind of a, a sacrifice, a display of love is that? I think that all of us can positively influence those around us and will be called to do so in the days ahead. Some of the... I was listening to a politician the other day who said that, that uh, the world is coming to an end in 12 years. We're all going to, uh, global warming, we're all going to die of starvation because the crops will fail, and, or I don't know exactly how she portrayed it, but 12 years is going to be the end of the world. And uh, I don't agree with her, but actually my view of the future is more apocalyptic than hers. I mean, if you read the book of Revelation, it says a third of the earth dies from famine, a third from war, and a third from plague. Well, I'm trying to read that in the most optimistic way possible. And okay, a third dies, and of the, the remaining third, another third dies, and of those who remain, another third of those dies. So there's still somebody left. But if you read it so it's, it's linear, then everybody's gone, you know? But, I mean, our, the Christian view the, of the end of the world is, is not a very rosy one. And I do believe that there is going to be great difficulties ahead in the days to come. But I believe also, I have this hope that God will carry us through them. He will protect us. He will hide us in the caves and in the mountains and in the dens. But I, that's what keeps me going. I mean, if I didn't have that hope, 
that lives within my heart. I, and I re read the news, I would just, I would come unglued. You know, what hope is there without the hope that God is going to guide us and lead us and protect us? If we don't have that hope, we're lost. I feel sorry for all these politicians. I mean, what, do they really think? Let's, just, let's, for the sake of argument, assume that their predictions are true. How on earth are they going to stop this in 12 years? There's just no way. They're going to get everybody on earth to work together in harmony to stop using fossil fuels? The, the president of Greenpeace, he says, how are you going to feed, feed 7 billion people without fossil fuels? I mean, for every calorie of corn that is produced in the field, it takes six calories of fossil fuels to produce that. He says, if you do away with fossil fuels, then people will have to run into forests and they'll cut down every tree in the world to get enough energy to keep our society running. The, the president of Greenpeace says, getting rid of fossil fuels is not the answer. So I don't know what hope these, these politicians can possibly have, but we have a hope that somehow God will guide us through. And without that hope, I think we are lost. So now, let me close with this thought. What is the evidence and the proof of our faith? Is it that we haven't murdered anybody today or haven't stolen from anybody today? Well, that is in a way, but what things endure? I read it to you just a few minutes ago. Love endures, okay. Faith, hope, and charity, or love. These three endure. This is the proof of our faith. If we have love for one another, then that is the proof of our Christian faith. And I know that I don't have that within me. I need God's, I mean, I have been wronged by other people, and I have wronged other people. And, you know, <laughs> I was a soldier in Vietnam, and after World War II, when the soldiers came back, most of them didn't talk about their experiences. That was kind of a general ten. They didn't like to talk about what happened, what they saw over there. And I think we've all been through really difficult experiences in our lives. But what gives me hope is God's mercy and his forgiveness, and also that he's going to carry us through. So if we really believe that he loves us, then we must show our love to others. What is missing in the church is in all churches, is displaying love and kindness towards others. Being a Christian does not automatically make you good. I was reading, uh, have any of you heard of Frederick Douglass? He was a former slave 
who was largely self-educated, he read vociferously. He loved to hear sermons, to have debates with people about Christianity. And he was a strong Christian. He became a Christian in his teens. And he was called the prophet, the prophet of freedom because he wrote and supported the liberation of the slaves. But listen what he says about some of the Christians in the South. He said, religious slaveholders are the worst. Douglas wrote, I assert most unhesitatingly that the religion of the South is a mere covering for the most horrid crimes, a justifier of the most appalling barbarity. And he goes on to just tell a story about a, a minister who owned a black slave, a black woman slave, and every time she made the slightest mistake, he would whip her, scourge her, and she constantly had welts on her back most of her life. And this man was a minister. Now, this is one of the reasons there are a lot of people have a bad impression of Christianity. Where was the love that this minister had towards this, this slave of his? It just wasn't there. You know what? I, we have to find ways to show love to people. We have to be inventive, creative, resourceful, inspired. I mean, I work with students who... You know, sometimes I just have to shake my head because they just don't know what to do. They're, they're clueless. And when they make a mistake and I have to go in and straighten it out, I don't say in front of them, you've made a terrible mistake. Or as I heard one doctor say to a student, what are you trying to do, kill this patient? Now the poor student who heard that ran out of the room in tears. And she cried for about half an hour after having this doctor say this to her in front of other students. I mean, it was really humiliating. But when I work with students and they make mistakes, and we finally figure it out and try to get everything straightened out, I say, I don't say, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to kill this baby? I say, I'm so glad you discovered this. I'm so glad you noticed this even if they didn't notice it. You know, maybe I was the one or someone else. But I try to make them look competent and build them up. You have to build them up. You have to give them hope and encouragement that they can succeed. And I'm sure that none of them will ever make that mistake again. You know, they'll learn their lesson. Not only learn, but they'll learn how to be observant and how to be careful and resourceful. So. We have to be inventive about how we show our love to others. Now, someone might say, oh, when you say, I'm so glad you noticed this, you're actually lying. I don't think that's a lie. Because they have learned the ability now to notice these things. So we have to be 
resourceful and pray for wisdom that God will show us how we can receive his love and display it to others. And I think if we would do that in this, in this church, it would transform the church. I've had a number of people tell me in this church all the things I'm doing wrong. And they were all true. They were all true. But we have to say, speak the truth in a way that it lifts each other up. We have to be careful that we're not discouraging other with our words, but we're rather that we're building them up. If you work with someone with that faults, which is everybody you work with, including the one you see in the mirror in the morning, you have to look for that person's strengths and find out what they do well and encourage them to use that gift in a way to be a blessing to others. And you, we have to do that for ourselves. We have to be asking ourselves, what gifts do I have? What talents do I have? I see, I know that there are people in this church who are suffering from grave illnesses. What gifts do they have? Well, I see great courage. that is an example to everybody, that inspires everyone, and that gives everyone hope, that through horrible situations, they can still smile and carry on and discharge all their duties. Like Elijah in the wilderness, when he's running away from Jezebel, the Lord says, I have these duties for you to do, I want you to do them. When people are suffering through sickness and they discharge their duties, they're showing incredible courage and faith. And I think they are to be commended for that. So we have to look for what gifts do others have and try to encourage them. Well, time has failed us. We should carry on. But let's have a closing prayer before we go on. Dear Father in heaven, we all have good reason to be humble, for there's so many things we can't do. But you have blessed each and every one of us with two or three or multiple gifts. And sometimes these gifts don't come out. We don't learn of them until we go through hardship. But we pray that you will help us to recognize our own gifts and to responsibly discharge them and to recognize the gifts in others and to encourage them. Help us to receive your love and to reflect that love to those around us so that they, the world will know that we are Christians and moreover so that we can encourage everyone in the church and out of the church with the gift of love. For these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.